Hey everybody, what's up? Sagi here. And before you listen to this episode, I just wanted to let you know that the Hacking UI podcast, while we still have a lot of downloads for our podcast, is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are not recording any more sessions for the specific podcast. So what you can do right now is, first of all, listen to this episode, and second, know that you can find David on thoughtleaders.io, that's his new business, or you can check out my new podcast, which is called The Creativepreneur Show. And you can just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. So those are the two domains that you would be able to find my show, my new blog, my new community. And I hope uh, to see you there. Also, be sure to follow David Tintner and Sagi Schreiber on Instagram. We're both on Instagram. I'm also on YouTube. So you can check out the YouTube channel if you want to check out YouTube. Enough with my talking. Oh, my God. So anyways, I hope you guys, though, connect with me and David on the different platforms after this episode. All right. Make sure to do so because we have so much new content for you. And enjoy, guys. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the Hacking UI podcast. I'm Sagi Schreiber. And I'm David Tintner. And today we're going to have a very special episode for you. It's actually the live recording from the San Francisco meetup that we conducted in November. We have six panelists for you, and we think you'll get a lot out of this one. I apologize for the sound on this one. It was recorded with an iPhone. But don't worry, in our next episode, we have just bought the best podcast microphones money can buy. Next episode also recorded with Melissa Hodge, and it's coming out very soon. So stay tuned and enjoy this one. Thank you for coming. We'll just jump right into it. I would like to introduce the panelists. So first of all, a round of applause for the panelists who came. All kinds of different great companies and roles just go by the order. So we got Derek Bender here from Uber, product designer from Uber. Woo! We got Ray Hall, okay, you're a designer of BitTorrent. Woo! And we got Bernard Fortet, user experience designer at Yahoo. <laughs> we got Lan Guo, Guo? Yeah. Right, all right, uh, UX researcher at Facebook. <laughs> Melissa Hodge, who is a product design manager at Facebook. I'm <laughs> in Israel, by the way, and I loved your lecture. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Um, and we got Asaf Shalef, a product designer at IDO. Uh, I actually got to know Asaf like about three years ago, uh, and I didn't even like, I didn't connect the dots when I contacted him. So it was very nice uh, and very talented designer. So thank you for coming. Uh, we got a list of questions that I would like to ask our panelists here. Just a bit of background about me and why, why I even wanted to do this event. So I'm a director of design at SimilarWeb, which is a company basically providing analytics for all websites and apps out there. We're basically on a scale of competition with Alexa and Panic, you know. Um, so we're growing really fast. I, we joined when we were like 50 people. I had a startup. I got, we got acquired by SimilarWeb, and we, were, we just closed to 50 people. And now, uh, less than two years later, we're over 230. 
So uh, I'm scaling my design team right now. I'm director of design and I need to hire a lot of designers, get them on board, and with that, we're experiencing a lot of you know trouble on the way. Where does the product designer fit? Do we need UX researchers as well? How do we how do we grow this thing? And what's the responsibilities and ownerships of each part? So that's why I really wanted to learn about this. First of all, I, I try to get as, as a variety, like a great variety of designers here that can help me learn. <laughs> so uh, and hopefully you guys will learn too. I would like to address the first question to um, Corey and to Derek. I can another mic. That's a mic. So the first question is, as a product designer, so as a product designer, what other roles in the company do you come in contact with? At Uber, being a product designer, um, I interact daily with PM, project manager, engineers, depending on like what project I'm working on. Those two roles mostly. Um, I also interact with user researchers, mostly at the start of a project. And then at Uber, we also have a whole other kind of section of people operations. So I interact with a product ops person. Those are the main roles I interact with. And then depending on kind of like what else or like what specific, specific project may be, I may be working with ops from like different cities. There's a lot of kind of, but those are the, like the main roles um, that I interact with. Can you just elaborate on product ops? Product ops uh, is kind of, so it's, they basically take care of like daily operations in terms of kind of how, how a company or how like cities run. They do like a lot of back and forth work between like communicating with like city teams and like HQ. So they're, that's what product ops does. And like develop DevOps, they actually are people like on the ground in each city running those cities like from day to day. So like actually, there's like a lot of information and um, things that they learn from a day-to-day and their day-to-day experiences, like talking with drivers that they then communicate to the product ops person who then communicates back with us. Okay, so it's basically kind of like the product marketing tool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So BitTorrent, we're a little bit smaller than Uber, I'm just guessing. Uh, so we're a few different hats. UX guys, we people, sorry, uh, we run our own UX research, we moderate them, so we actually have an office manager that helps us with recruitment that we've kind of taught and worked with her to nail down our recruitment process. We also, the best copywriters at our place are in the marketing department, uh, so we deal with them a lot. Some of the front-end engineers, we kind of bounce around to different products. We've got about five different products, uh, but all of the designers are embedded with the product team. So you'll deal with PMs and engineers on a daily basis, but you kind of end up searching around the company for smart people and people that are good at what they do and excited about what they do and happy to help out on anything that sounds you know, new and exciting. And so you end up kind of bouncing around quite a bit to everybody on a daily basis. And I would say the last thing would be users. Like try to talk to users every day. You do that? You talk to users every day? Uh, yeah, either via email or direct chat or via help tickets. You should always talk to users every day. Alright, great. So, next question for you, Melissa. I know that in Facebook, you guys do the product design role, and it comes out of the belief of the full stack design. So, how do you see that role coming on Facebook, do you think, is right for other companies? 
I think it depends on what you're trying to do. I've worked in both ways. When I first started at Apple, I was an interaction designer, and there was another set of designers who designed visual design. But I found that that model is simultaneously quite efficient and also has a lot of weaknesses. It's very efficient if you have a whole lot of design to do, and it's all pretty standard, right? So if you're designing a lot of enterprise software where there are slightly custom implementations of that enterprise software, and a set of wireframes is going to have a pretty standard implementation across the board. You can be extremely efficient if you have one person banging out wires and the other person applying the visual design to them. Right? But if what you are trying to do is create dynamic illustrations, dynamic animations that are a deeply embedded part of the UX of any application, for example, that model breaks down really fast. Because at that point, the visual design, the look and feel of the application is so deeply enmeshed with the interaction paradigms that you can no longer separate those two disciplines. And if you try to separate them, you will come to bad outcomes. Because your interaction designer will design one thing. They'll take them to the visual designer. The visual designer will have different ideas about how this works. You have to go back to the interaction designer and you go in this cycle, and eventually somebody has a final call, and that final call may be called from the perspective of one discipline or the other, as opposed to from a holistic view of how the app should work. So I would say another thing. The theme of the evening is scaling teams. Again, if you are looking for an assembly line style of design, separation between visual and interaction design can be beneficial. However, in a rapidly scaling organization, your design needs change constantly, and your projects are constantly changing, and the demands on your team are constantly changing. If everyone on your team is capable of doing the full stack of design, even if, like, let's be honest here, not everybody is strong in every discipline, but you should be able to, let's say your emphasis is mostly interaction design, you should be able to execute reasonably well on a typograph typographically driven UI, right? You maybe should not be the guy who's drawing icons, I am not the person who want drawing your icons, by the way. But you should be able to take a visual design scheme and put together something credible. You should understand basic, basic rules of composition. You should be able to own that project. And the reason why you want to do that is because that provides immense flexibility to both your organization and the people. That means that anybody can move to any project. And as you grow and as your needs change really rapidly, you're going to need that. Okay, thank you very much. It's then next, I guess, because and you're also from Facebook, and where do you see the UX researcher role coming in? And I'll give a bit of background about that because I heard like a lot of companies, like not a lot, but I heard of companies that basically have uh, UX researchers working straight along with the uh, product designers, which basically makes a again a visual designer and interaction designer. Uh, we have some places uh, back in Israel, by the way, where. You have a company, you have like the, the, they call them product designers or UI UX designers, but basically there's a UX division who is like separate, but they work together and they create the wires. Basically, they do some research, they create with the wires, and they, they even get paid more than the, 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 the visual designers. And, no, no, I'm sorry. Like, no, so what I had, I had the designer coming to me, and she was very smart, and she was like wanting to do more UX and wanted to get into the product design. But in her last company, they didn't let her because there's another whole division of 
you have the sun, and they create the wire, and you cannot touch anything that has to do with the interaction of the wire. You can do, I mean, you can have, you know, comments back and forth, but then again, it creates a lot of, a lot of, uh, I, I aesthetic and, you know, a lot of problems. And then she just looked for another place to work. So, and they told her, you know, if you want, you can go on a course, like a six-month course of UX, and then you can go into the UX department, you can just do UX and wires. But she didn't want that, she wanted to design as well. So, that's why she was looking again for another product company. So again, a UX researcher at Facebook, I guess, works in you does in a bit like in a division, but yeah, how do you see it coming? Yeah, and also just to give you a little background of myself, I started as a UX design. I, I didn't start specializing in research. I didn't I I did wireframing, I did prototyping and also research, but I only started specializing in research two years ago. So I have that I miss doing design, but I think it's also that I want to have a specialty, you know, like I have design background and other researchers may also have data science background. So at Facebook, research is much more decentralized. We all work very closely with product team. So I work on Facebook business side, uh, as specifically, and I work with two product teams. So we have designers and uh, design managers and product managers and engineers and data scientists. We work as a team very collaboratively. And I think overall, researchers' responsibility is to help the team understand who they're designing for. So that's an overarching theme. And however you do it, it's very depending on what your team's needs are. For me, for example, we're planning for next year, and we have themes on what we're trying to accomplish. So now I'm trying to put together a research roadmap, going from um, overall strategy questions to very technical, from uh, evaluative research that I can do once a feature has um, early on design concepts to we just want to go to a market to understand how people will actually work with advertising. So there's two different parallel paths, I would say. Okay, so basically you, you're really deep inside the research and you're not, you're not touching the surface of the, of the visual part or are you doing any wires or are you getting, what, what's the highest part that you get to where you pass off your work? Well, I, I would also say, compared to my past experience, Facebook is very not deliverable focused. So, like, it's not so much about who owns wireframe, it's more about we're trying to create this product together. So, we would do very iterative testing of things. And it's never like a perfect uh, testing. And we always put things forward, you know, whether it's to do internal testing with employees, we all do our own dog footing sessions. <laughs> okay. um, to, to find bugs, and then we also do a small confluent test with external users before we do a percentage. And we always talk with users, whether it's you know meet with advertisers from the agency side to just going to visit call center to see what uh, questions and troubles before I uh, reporting. Okay, so just like like again, I'm sorry to dig dig into like the structure basically, but so. I, I know that you know in Facebook, when you say the product design team has basically a PM, right, and a product designer and developers, like basically inside this kind of group. So there's also a UX researcher or not, or are you guys yet? So like you have also UX. Yeah, we have a researcher, um, designers, engineers, common strategists, data scientists, engineering. And so everyone is on the same kind of agile team. Or, yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I want to. Um, I think that, again, scale, and in this case I'm not talking about the size of a company, 
instead I want to talk about the size of a user base, or people base. Uh, so when you have 1.5 million people that are across the world, that task of telling the product team who they're designing for is much, much harder. You can't just, as much as I would love to be on a chat with users every day, if I use that as my sample size, I would get a pretty skewed version of the world because there are so many different people. On the one hand, 1% is definitely not an edge case when you have 1.5 billion people, but it's really easy to over-optimize or over-correct for that one guy that you talk to in India. So the critical factor that the UX research team brings at Facebook is helping us understand that vast diversity of our audience, and it is incredibly diverse. So. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, all right, we're not. This one's for you. <laughs> What's the product delivery methodology like in Yahoo? Okay, so Yahoo has been like redefining itself since Marisa joined. That was like three, four years ago. I joined two years ago, and with like the, that like acquisition spree that Yahoo had, where they had like, a ton of startups. So I came from a startup. We were six. They joined Yahoo. But for a year, we were a small team growing slow. So we went from me, one designer, that I was like, like one army man doing everything that we had in the startup, to like two designers. Inside of an organization that we call it the Mobile Emerging Products. So it was very startup-like. Like pretty much like 80% of the people there, uh, that were, we got to like 400 or 500 employees pretty much all were coming from startups. So the process was very much like their philosophy was you get one PM, a few engineers, and one designer, and you start a problem. And you deploy and you figure out if that works or not. And then you try different teams and, and see which uh, projects work or not. So that was two years ago. A year ago I switched into search, which is like like way way bigger. And the methodology was slightly different. That case, now we are dealing with, like, as you were saying, Lisa, like, a ton of users. We're dealing with a massive amount of engineers working on the site. That means that any design decision affects a lot of users, and we have to be more careful. So it's a little bit more like process-driven. There's a lot of PM product documents and like trying to figure that out, and then that goes into docput, and that is a process that. As long as we don't believe that the product is right, we stay there and then we do another doctor session. And when we believe it's right, then we go and like do a, uh, an announcement. It usually goes to the US market and then extends. Uh, the search department has been a bit, like changing at Yahoo uh, from a Yahoo that had search through Bing to a Yahoo that had search by itself. And now they kind of like pivoting from Bing, Google, so it's kind of a, like a mix. So basically, it went from being very startup focused, where it's a very small team, everyone wears different hats. We do like super rapid prototyping, and then we do fast releases, to a very large team where it's more process driven and there's a lot of steps to the process, and definitely longer. Thanks. And and how do you basically after you get the product out there? How do you test? Do you yourself go out there and do the testing anyway, or like is it the department that does it? So before, like, like on the second part, yeah. So now we 
like like two years ago when I came, the UX research team was formed. It's a team that's like decentralized. I'm sorry, it's centralized, uh, not as yours, which probably is more like on its team there than UX researcher. And I think it, that's more related to the idea of scaling. That's because the team was starting. So you need some kind of education process where everyone that comes in is on the same page. And I think as the team grows, probably there will be more dedicated UX researchers for different teams. But nonetheless, uh, these researchers get localized in one place in the campus, and they work with one or two products for like six months or one year. So they get like a very one-on-one -on -one connection with that team. But they can always come back and learn from other uh, UX researchers. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's like something uh, we have something very similar going on, like you know, much smaller scale. But we have a product marketing team, which is like basically the UX researchers that are sitting like in, in another team, but in, in the next kind of group, uh, like next group, but like they're sitting like uh, going fast, going <laughs> super fast. But but yeah, they're like they're not inside each one of the teams, but they're like sitting like in another kind of team, but. You see them now starting to be more integrated in our agile team, so I understand like, what you just said. So. I wanted to add something. I was talking to Ellie there before, and I, having been in the startup like phase where I was like doing extremely dirty prototyping, like talking to people in Starbucks and figuring things out a matter of a morning. I think that UX research team is dedicated to like really large stuff, and then even being on a search, which is a large team. Uh, we're trying to push for like really rapid prototyping for our designers, which are also UI, UX, and a bit of research sometimes. So that's something that we're pushing on to learn things faster. Oh, cool. Uh, we gotta go on. I can dig for hours on this, but next <laughs> one for Asaf. So Asaf, you come from IDO, which is basically a, a consulting kind of company, right? Like a consulting base. So how does that work in, in IDO, like this whole process of you know, product shipping? Well, it's very different than all of you guys. We're usually what we're doing, first of all, is building a team, right? So our projects are mainly on solving problems rather than maintaining product for a long time. So everything will be uh, built to that specific problem. So if we have a client that some people are more attached to that client that subject, then they'll join in. I'm specifically working on, first of all, I'm not called a product designer, it's like interaction designer, because not all of our projects have products. Sometimes it's just like you're working on a specific interaction. It can be an environment interaction, it can be something that is not tangible, not physical. The titles are in kind of a blur. Uh, we have a lot of disciplines. We have com uh, designers, interaction designers, our business um, folks are Business designers, our developers, are creative coders. Uh, you have to be a designer, some sort of designer. Yeah. So basically, when we're building a team, we're finding the right people. We we need to have some sort of a vision of what this thing is going to be at the end. So we don't know if it's going to be a digital product necessarily or non-digital. So we need to have some sort of a vision, and then we build the team and um, we bring the right people. The team and the people they need to be. They also need to be attached to that specific subject. I'm working in the design for learning studio in uh, San Francisco. So San Francisco is split to different studios. So I'm basically working on projects around education. 
and not 100% of the time, but most of the time. So we have this group of people that specialize in education. And we kind of go through like the hats we're wearing and not about, like I, I used to work in a startup before I joined IDEO and it was like wearing a lot of hats, doing a lot of product, UX, marketing, I was even working in support, I was like the, the only designer pretty much in the, in the startup. And here in IDEO, wearing the hats is around the path that we take from starting the project till the end of the project. So the project can be like two weeks to six months, seven months, maybe there's phase one, maybe there's phase two. And what you do is the research phase, right? In the beginning, we get uh, this big question to answer, problem to solve, and we all, like, there's a business, there's a business designer, there's a right now in the team with, where two uh, interaction designers, one creative coder, two researchers, and our researchers. One is a research designer, and one is a business designer. Well, it's, it's, a really, it's really a mix. Uh, but, but the cool thing is that we take this journey together and we kind of do the research together and we go and travel to see the actual um, client or the target audience and we, we each examine them from uh, our own lens. So we get the more business lens, the more uh, product lens. Um, I think it's a very healthy uh, approach. I, don't, I know that not every company that needs to actually maintain product that. We have the privilege of having a big pool of, of different types of designers to choose from and not doing the actual uh, maintaining. But yeah, the day-to-day the -day work is pretty much depends on where you are with the project. And that's it. Right. Sounds pretty cool. So like the, even the developer is like part of the day one phase. So right now I'm working with uh, Exxon developer, really amazing and We've been in this project for more than four months, and the only reason he developed something so far was like an Excel function that helps us do some prototyping. But the next phase will be for him to be like head down, just developing these things that we prototype. But it really depends. Like like on this project, we decided that there is a digital platform at the end, so we went to the field and we tested all these different. Prototypes and one prototype was more visual and UX. One prototype was uh, like an envision, or something was coded, and something was just pen and paper. So we really tried to use the right tools for the project, and not necessarily the right tools that I can bring to the table. So if I can't bring something, someone else will, and you know you kind of take ego outside of the picture here and bring the right people to the project. Sounds very cool. Sounds like a dream. <laughs> the next question is basically for everyone. Lisa, I wanted to for you to start with this because I'm I'm very I really want to know how Facebook like uh, the product team does as well. But so in any product cycle, when the feature let's say you're working on a feature and now you have to build this feature, so is there any routine or something specific that you know the team does like uh, you have your team do like so let's say, for instance, in Intercom, they print out the jobs to be done. So that's something they have to do. And they print them out and they hang them on the wall that's for all their, you know, lens of what they're working on the future. Okay, so there are a lot of different answers that I can give you to this. But I think I think there's a core framework that, you can, that Facebook uses that is universally applicable when you are doing product design, whether you are creating a brand new product from the ground up or whether you are growing an existing product. And call it understand, identify, and execute. Um, so when you start any product or any project 
are in a feature. First, you need to understand the problem that you are actually trying to solve. For example, is it a real problem? You have no idea how many times I have seen fantastically executed, beautiful designs that are solving something that is not actually a problem. So, if you're going to spend your time lovingly crafting an experience, building beautiful code that is gorgeously extensible and that will work across multiple platforms, let's make sure that it's a real thing that you're doing. So that means, what does that mean? How do you understand whether this is a real problem or not? Okay, that's a great question. Research. <laughs> data. So sometimes data, sometimes research. So you use what you've got, and then you create a hypothesis. If this is a real problem, and we try to solve it, this is what success looks like. Then you go forth and you try to build something. And ideally, you try to build something really small, because if you have any doubt about whether or not, so by the way, the first part is understanding the problem, the second part is identifying what you need to do to solve it, and then the execution part is building it, and then you lather, rinse, and repeat. So when you're talking about the identify part, you really need to identify what your success metrics are. After you execute, you check your success metrics against what you built. And is it the right thing? Did you actually build the right thing? Did you make a dent in the problem you were trying to solve? And then you lather, rinse, and repeat. And uh, another like about that. So you really could like you know say those three things that just like <laughs> came right out. So do you have like the product can hang them up on the wall or something? <laughs> because let's say I do. Yeah. <laughs> have you been to Facebook? We have so many. Posters. Yeah. Okay. okay. But I, I stumbled across like you know multiple times where like we had identified the problem, we had identified the way that we're going to solve it, and then somewhere on the way, you know, we had other people coming to the project and they they, they you know express their opinion because they didn't see nobody printed it out, put it on you know on a piece of paper, yeah. and just like you know so oh yeah, yeah I would love to see that. Love to see that, but even the CEO walks in and is like, "Oh, great! So how about you and that and that?" And all of a sudden, you get a feature which is nothing like what you planned, but then it's not written anywhere. You start out trying to build a horseless carriage, and the next thing you know, you have a Doberman on a skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so uh, you need to write your goals down, and that sounds like a stupid metric to. Follow, but you need to write your goals down and you need to check yourself against them. And this is true whether you are a team leader or whether you are an individual contributor, um, whether you are working on a big project or a small project. Write down your goals, make sure that you are always tracking against them. And when you see yourself going off track, there are two questions you can ask. One, does this serve my goal? And if it does not serve your goal, does that mean your goal needs to change? If you're damn certain that you are on the right path and it's be, and it's different from your original goal, then you need to go back and reassess and see if your goal is actually the right thing. But your criteria for changing that goal needs to be really, really high. Really high. Alright. Okay. Guys, anybody else have like daily routine? Something that's you know in the product cycle that will help us. This is more individualistic since you've given like the team approach. I, I call it that I'm a super optimizer. I optimize the shit out of everything. So what I, what I did when I joined the startup was every time I would get stuck 
in something, I would write it down. I got stuck on this. And then maybe a few days or weeks later, I would get unstuck. And then I would reflect on how I got unstuck. I would write down, I got unstuck in this, and I got unstuck doing that. And after like six months, I had like this huge document. And it was less about like looking at that document and more about having it integrated in me. And suddenly like problems, I, I didn't get stuck as much. Like, like it was crazy. And one of the things I'm doing now is uh, I import new designers into a team is I encourage them to do things like that. Especially we have a designers associate program we have. So these are designers that come fresh from school, and we're trying to put a lot of effort into them. So what are like best ways to accelerate their learning? This one, like a very important skill, like basically is like reflect on a daily basis on why and how you're doing your things to make your, propel yourself faster and further on a daily basis. And that, I think that's been very, very powerful. Yeah. Right then. So I'll go a different route as well. So we all have, we're embedded on product teams of BitTorrent, and there's always like the young, hip-ass, like front-end devs, right? They're young, and they're just killing it with JavaScript. And there's those old guys that all do like C++, these really big old things and really hard to understand problems, right? And meet those guys, like talk to them. They're normally interesting, albeit mildly antisocial. If you work hard enough, you can break through that thick skin of like disillusionment and jadedness. And you can find out some really interesting things about like the way your product works. If your product is at all technically complicated, you can find out really, really interesting ways. You can ask them how to explain how it works. And you may have to ask them to dumb it down like two or five times, but eventually you can get to something that's really interesting. And you can find that way to get this brilliant idea that these guys had into something that's consumable for people to understand everything. Great. So, two quick points. First of all, we use post its all the time. different colors. You can organize them, you can carry them around, you're doing lunch, you're hitting a train or a bus together, and post it. It works, really. I'm not an organized person, but just having post it, just putting your ideas all the time on paper, put them on the back of your computer. I guess notebooks works as well, but this is too, like, you have to be organized to get one of the two to actually make this happen. Post it is very quite casual. You can just throw them away after you realize it's bullshit what you wrote. And so it's just, it's really good. Second thing. Oh, yeah. Post it. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 So we have this, I'm coming, I'm from Israel. And we have this culture in Israel where usually, I, I can't say for, can't generalize too much, but culture is really, Direct. So, and direct, and it's about it's about canceling each other. No one gets offended. Hey, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so it's about like someone's telling you an idea, and the way your brain works is usually, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna cancel what you just said, and if I can't cancel it, you won't get offended. But if I can't cancel it, it's a great idea. That's how we work. Like, seriously, I can't, I can't say for everyone, but at least that's the way I was uh, used to work. And that's like my, how my, my brain will pick and work. And IDEO is a, 
kind of changed me in a way of okay. how I think and how I work and how I collaborate. I don't know if it's better. It's just like we're asking about our daily routine and our culture, and I kind of love it. And it's around ego aside, and you don't interrupt someone else's thoughts. And the reason for that is you don't want to make anyone insecure when you're being creative, right? You're like, you want them to feel that this is a safe zone and anyone can say whatever silly idea he has or she has on their mind. And that's where, that's where all the magic kind of happens, where people are just like nonstop throwing ideas. Like, I think that when I realized that this thing is really working, when I set the first number, it took me a while to set in brainstorm sessions, and the ideas just kept on coming. So there's no, there's no, like, it's not five seconds of silence. Every time you join a brainstorm session, ideas just like put them on the wall with a post. No, it's be optimistic. <laughs> yeah, thanks for important. I mean, I'll take you that back to <laughs> Who here talks to actual users? Corey and I said you do, but who here talks ever talk to actual users? Like everyone. Okay, so let's go and have a round of like, uh, what's the you know how many times a month or it's my or... <laughs> So we talk to users all the time throughout the process, especially on like research at the beginning. Even try to find out what what is it that problem we're trying to solve. We'll do tons of types of sessions around like quick prototype, but like I said at the beginning, but we'll definitely be hands-on with the users. Uh, we're very human-centered. You have to be, you have to talk to humans. Be centered around it. Um, and also at the end of the, uh, of the process, when we actually have some sort of a working prototype of the project we're going to do, we'll try to, we'll try to come up with a few different versions before we deliver, okay, okay, fine, this is the thing you're going with. We'll probably have a few versions, phases that we'll test with. Uh, okay. So we talk to users all the time. But, <laughs> but, so I mentioned before that with 1.5 billion people, you, your demographic is everybody, right? And it's, the audience is incredibly broad. Lana mentioned that we also dog food. So usually the first users that we talk to are internal employees who are testing the features that we've built. Now I have to tell you that we use Facebook for work. That might sound like either a dream or a nightmare to you, and the reality of this is, is that it's probably somewhere in between. But that means that internal users are actually kind of like a raw nerve because they have such an incredible sensitivity to anything that might get in their way for using Facebook to accomplish their work, or like hypersensitivity because they are looking out for other people, which is great. But it means that their feedback is not enough. So while the first users that we talk to are generally ourselves, we cannot use that alone as our barometer for deciding whether our design decisions are correct or whether our product decisions are correct. So we rely on a couple of different things. Number one, data. When we released a test out into the world, the canary in the coal mine as to whether or not that test was effective or whether we are getting unintended consequences is what happens in the numbers. Two, research trips, where 
our designers and our product teams actually get to connect with real users in their real environments and see what they're actually doing either with our products or without our products. So for example, my team has gone in the last year to Indonesia, Singapore, India, and Ghana, where our awesome researchers help us meet people in market, where we do what we call in-market intercepts, where we're just in a public place and we grab people as they're going by and we start asking them questions. Or we do in-home interviews with real users, which can be incredibly eye-opening when you are talking to a woman who is trying to tell us about how she's using Facebook and her son grabs the phone out of her hand and starts doing something else. Um, like you get to really see how real people connect. But the key part of this when your demographic is so fucking huge <laughs> is that we need people like Len to help us understand whether or not the people that we're connecting with are actually representative and how big of a segment are they representative. So you can't just talk to users and assume that you've got it. You have to have the global perspective. Your ads get. Yeah, and I will also add to the other side of that. Um, to what Melissa said is, we have, you know, very emerging trips. We can take the whole team to different countries, but at the same time, a lot of times you don't have the time or you know the resource to do that. So we also do a lot of quick, you know, testing, like remote testing or survey. So there's different methods we would use, and I think it's also a privilege to work in a company like that, where you have all the resources to allow you to do the right thing, depending on the question you're trying to answer, get access to. So to phrase it again, first phase was like super startup mode, and I didn't have a Starbucks next door, but I had people from HR, pretty much the same. So I would go to HR and ask a lot of questions. And no. Whatever. <laughs> and it was great. Like I had I had like like interesting feedback that was not that biased because if I were to ask other people in the company, like engineers or like other products, it was different. Like they do lack like people from the street uh, for that for that phase. Now in search is it a bit like harder because we're dealing with a system that is extremely based in algorithms. So we like kind of like fit like puzzle pieces into this system, and then the system figures out how to assemble them. So I've like been thinking a lot about how as designers now looking into the future, and as we deal with these systems that are a little bit obfuscated on what they do, how do we research and understand how users interpret? the other side, because maybe there's like a million permutations of your like a few hundred uh, puzzle pieces. So it's a, a lot of data, a lot of like talking to the science team, talking to the research team, and trying to bring one lab uh, five user session plus a ton of metric, plus some science understanding of how the algorithm works, and then some examples of what's in help. So a combination of those four things allow you to make a picture of what's happening on the other side, right? It's tough. Um, so I'm still trying, trying to figure out how you guys. I can't disagree with anything that these two lovely people from Facebook said. Data, yes, big. Qualitative data, also very, very big, and not just for designers. Like, we try to have engineers come in and observe user testing. Get your engineers in there. Like a lot of times, they don't realize that they're not your user, right? Like we all went to the design school where we got hammered in. You are not your user. You are not your user. 
you right? And so a lot of these engineers, they, they miss that because they think everybody is as smart as them. They are staring at it all the time, so they think everybody is as interested in it as they are. And then on top of that, they don't get the love from the data, right? There's not that moment where they see somebody go, I love what you guys do here. Like, thank you so much for doing this. I use your product every day and I fucking love it. Like, and engineers don't get that enough, right? So they get like beat down and, and they need that love, right? And you don't get that from the forum trolls and you don't get that from the data science. Like, so user, like the, the qualitative feedback from users is as useful for your teammates that aren't designers as they are for also feeding into the design decisions that you make. Right, point of view. Yeah, so I talk to a user, users every time I get into an Uber. So um, being on the driver part of the side, it's just easy. easy. Like, oh, hey, um, so what do you think about you know what do you think about this? And then like then they'd be like not knowing that I work for Uber, and they're like, oh yeah, I, this is what I think this feature, or this is this is how I, my day is going, or a lot of really good things like have come from that. A lot of really good insights that you normally wouldn't have gotten. Well, again, it's like kind of goes back to like the qualitative. It's all qualitative information. It's just like this one person's experience. But it also gives you like an indication of like um, what to kind of look for maybe in the data, like maybe like when you go then when you go back to the office and you talk to the data science um, people, you talk to like the product ops people, and then you actually pull quantitative data on that, and you'll say, Oh, like this this actually backs up their story, like this isn't just this one person's problem, this is like a larger problem that we can tackle with like maybe something simple or move like moving a button possibly. So yeah, it's it's a very you know, it's a it's a you know it's something that you know just being uniquely unique uh, maybe unique to Uber, but it's it's just easy every time I get back in in the back of like an Uber to just ask like how's your day going and then what do you think of this feature or what do you think of this feature and then they they spill their guts. It's just very it's very easy to get them to open up and to really be honest about things and that's that's like a lot of fun actually for me too. Cool. We have one more question, which is like on the must list, and then we have two bonus questions. Okay, so the two bonus questions, see how much time we have, but we got we have to be super quick now. All right, so one like the, the last must question. I'm gonna I'm gonna have it like really fast, really technical. It's a very technical question. <laughs> All right, do you do high fidelity mockups or low fidelity mockups? And what tools do you use to create them? Just very technical and and then afterwards in the Q&A someone has something to ask about it. Yes, high fidelity, yes, low fidelity, and sketch. sketch. But how do you do high fidelity and sketch? High fidelity and sketch? No, I'm talking about also interactions. Like, well, like oh, interactions, like basically like prototypes. Then high fidelity mock-ups. Okay, prototypes. No prototyping. Um, well, I do basic prototyping in vision, but no high fidelity animations or anything. Low range uh, After Effects and Envision, mid range Core Composer and Framer ish, high range HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. I'm in my mastery of knowing which tool to use for every problem, super important. The faster you learn, the better. And I would say I've gone 80% JavaScript and Framer, 20% uh, Envision, Pixel. Course composer or what's a new one? Form. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you used to be a designer. I draw. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, high fidelity and low fidelity depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to get an idea across very quickly, um, use whatever you are fastest at, fastest at, even if it doesn't give you quite the level of fidelity that you need. For example, Keynote, amazing tool. Like, dead simple, horrible to maintain, but you can work really fast in it. If you need to produce something incredibly high fidelity, detail, or branching, so for example, you need a demo where you go through different steps that have different <laughs> outcomes depending on some kind of logic, framework is probably your your your, your jam, sometimes quartz composer. Definitely sketch and envision will be the first thing I'll try to test, especially with users or interactions, my new uh, principle thing uh, for principle. And also a comment. I'll just add, I like, I also love principle, I've just played around with it recently. Found myself like recently working about a week on a high fidelity prototype, the HTML CSS and JavaScript. That was super, and then I found out that I need to create a new interaction on the prototype that broke me. <laughs> it broke me. <laughs> totally broke me. I had to like, and I tagged, and if I double click one tag, like in Gmail, then it opens up, and I had to do that, and I don't know how to do that JavaScript now. <laughs> I broke my head. So. Yeah, anyway, uh, just today, just so you know, I think, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's for sure. But uh, just today, so you know, uh, Pro.io, and we're not sponsoring this in any way, just I released a new feature, which you can just, uh, uh, from Sketch and Photoshop, just open like Sketch files and Photoshop files in Pro.io, so you can keep your layer the same way. I guess it could be or something, but uh, interesting to find out. All right, so, Two bonus questions. Okay, how many of you are stressed to get out of here soon? Raise your hand. How many of you would like to stay for two bonus questions? Raise your hands. Great, okay, we got it. Okay. All right, first bonus question, which is up the topic of basically scaling a design team in one way, but it's kind of like on topic in another way, is uh, for you, Melissa, as a design manager. Stuck Sorry, again. I keep, I keep you're in, the, you're in the middle. So. <laughs> so, tips for other design managers hiring designers, like tips for hiring designers, finding talent, and interviewing. Okay, so when you're scaling, there's pressure to get butts and seats. It's incredible pressure, right? When your project teams are telling you that they are blocked by design, that is the worst possible feeling as the owner of the design team. However, do not compromise your standards because the only thing worse than having an empty seat is having the wrong button in the seat. Um, and so, uh, then my second piece of advice to you is be structured in what you're looking for. Think about the capabilities of your team now. Think about where you want your team to be in a year and two years and what capabilities you need to round out that team. While we do hire full stack designers at Facebook, people have different strengths. And at the end of the day, you're probably never going to be able to train up someone's weakness to the level that you want it to be. You need to find ways to play to your team's strengths, and you need to build out strengths where you don't have them. So, make a map. Make a map. Right. I mean, it took a while to like, get the hang of um, getting hired in Silicon Valley. And I learned the whole process from American, how to talk about myself very quickly, how to do like four months uh, process of interviewing. Uh, and I get to interview in a few places, and I think the one thing that I really love is when a team tries to to sit on a group 
really fit by joining the session, the design session. Not just question, not just formal question. They just like, okay, let's solve this thing. Let's brainstorm it from for a second and like from the like the, the really initial uh, concept and let's see how how are we a good fit? Like especially the, around the people that you're about to work with, not just generic designers, but if there's a, a specific team that you know uh, this person is going to work with, try to put them in a room and solve problems. So the culture thing can be like bring someone from an okay designer to an amazing designer and other way around. One caution on that though. If a company is going to bring you into a working session like that, don't let them do it on a shipping product of their own or a product that they're actively trying to develop because frankly, that is fucking shady. <laughs> they are getting you to do work for free. And you should not do work for free. I'm into that. More on the other side of hiring is as a design team, like create the space in time for that person to learn and reflect on a weekly basis, that's gonna pay off so much, so, so much. Like, if people can learn, if they have a space to learn. Uh, if you do not have a full recruiting team doing recruiting for your company, don't assume your HR person knows how to hire designers, <laughs> <laughs> or where to post jobs, or how to interview them properly. Get involved if you can at all. They know how to hire engineers, most likely. Help them to hire designers. Get them to post jobs on the places that you would look for jobs on, and help them out throughout this process. They want to provide you with a good designer. Help help them do that. Yeah. I actually had success with that lately when I just like I took the HR person who like helping me out in my company, and I was like, listen, let's go over like a few portfolios. We went through a few portfolios together, and she got the hang of like, first of all, how to you know build that portfolio, which she didn't know before, which was already saved me a lot of time on my day. And second thing I tried to do is I tried to I, I learned that I like I wanted to do that ahead of time, like before I started hiring, but I'm doing it now, and I'm seeing the process of people that did not get accepted. That I'm the one sending them that they did not get accepted. If they did not like the HR lady because sometimes, I mean, uh, it's a, again, it's a small organization, right? But like, uh, I try to get involved personally because also people that do not get accepted and went through some kind of design or anything, like, or through any process, they need to know that. So that's something I have to question. Uh, and another thing about what you guys said, uh, I just, uh, all right, so I'll take a moment to say <laughs> I'm launching a podcast in about two or three days, and it's both getting in the time team. <laughs> Uh, again, from the will for me to learn. Uh, and our first episode was recorded with Billy Kelly, who's the VP of product of innovation. So one tip he gave in, in his uh, interview, in the podcast was, basically they take and work with designers a bit, like freelance, and they're a product, but freelance. And then if the freelance is a good fit, they hire them. So it's like kind of like a, another way of going around it, like not having a design text or anything, so it's interesting. And the other thing he said is, when you need to fill in those seats, he said also, don't be pressured to fill in the seat. But even if you're not hiring right now and don't have a seat, just keep looking and, and keep process going. Like keep the process going all the time. So keep your pipeline rolling. Yeah. Yeah. The balance constantly go fast. So. I would add one more thing, which is chances are if you're in a smaller organization, you as a designer may be interviewing designers, but there are other people in your organization who are interviewing designers. 
Um, and they too, as well as your HR people, probably don't know what to look for. However, you can teach them. And one of the best ways to teach people and to have a consistently good interviewing process is to use a structured process where each person who's on that interview loop has a role and has information that they are trying to understand from the candidate. So for example, maybe your product manager walks through a product strategy problem with the designer. And maybe your marketing person walks through their visual design acuity. And maybe you, because you have the most experience, are walking through their past work. Or an engineer walks them through a technical problem and how they might solve the design, right? But make sure it's consistent across the interview loops because then your, your interview with designer A and your interview with designer B are going to produce the same kind of good results. Great, thanks. And just one more. Okay. Uh, as part of uh, scaling your teams, right, um, I'm always a believer that you, know, you should always hire for your replacement. As part of that, what would be the thing that you want to teach that other person, right? As a replacement. So, what you're talking about is having a bench. Um, so, when you are growing your own design organization, who is your deputy? Who is your next in line? You get hit by a bus, who takes over? And I can't tell you one thing that I'd want that person to learn because it's individual to each designer. So um, when that person comes onto my team, I'm going to look at their strengths. And I'm going to look at their weaknesses. And I'm going to look at where I just think they need more experience. So for example, a lot of designers might come on with the potential for leadership, the potential for mentoring other designers. But maybe they've never done it. And let me tell you, nothing teaches you more as a designer than suddenly having responsibility for another designer's success. So I would get them an intern. See what happens. Do they suddenly turn into an amazing person who is like structuring work for this intern successfully, giving them opportunities to learn and reflect on their job? Or do they just shove a whole bunch of tasks on that intern and overwhelm them, or give them only things that don't matter and not challenge them? Maybe that person isn't my touch. Does that make sense? But it, it totally depends on the person. And this is the art of building a good design team. Like, you can't, there's no formula. It depends on the people, it depends on the organization. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a generic question, right? So you've got product and you know, not product, and you want to see some product. Okay, so let's take on this question, and then time for QA. So now, nowadays, there's a lot of talk about the designer's role being basically less visual and, and more kind of like seamless being the future like internet of things coming into our lives, uh, virtual reality, 3D, um, basically the visual side, the 2D side that we're doing right now is coming, seems like it's coming like to kind of like a, an error or it's like less important being that uh, an API are replacing their new rock stars that five years ago when you evaluate the designer. Do you feel that, and what do you think the future, uh, how will it affect the future of like, the role of the product design? I have opinions, but this seems like your jam. <laughs> it's everyone's jam. So I don't think product design is going anywhere. Maybe the name will change. I, I think I want to hear you guys first, because my thoughts are, Kind of mix around this. How so, yeah, I'll bring it back after you guys talk. First thing, so design comes from diseño, 
Italian word, and Diseño uh, talks about how we think and how we represent what we think. So the idea of a designer is somebody that really understands like something in the brain and then can represent it, represent it outside. So maybe the like the physical representations will change. Maybe it's something that you put on the wall of your home and never, never touch it. Maybe it's on your phone. Maybe something that like it's some entity in your house that listens to you. But there will always be that underlying understanding of what's happening and how to represent it in the world that designers would accept that. So that's uh, yeah. To follow that, uh, you're all, it's always got to be in the hands of a user at some point, right? And uh, if you look at the underlying fundamentals of visual design, right, it's all about creating hierarchy and organization for people so that they're able to understand things. And whether that's through visual design or interaction design or you know auditory voice commands, like you're still going to have to find a way to organize the outrageous amount of data for people into a, something that they can understand. Um, yeah, I would say if you kind of look at um, some of the companies who that are being founded now, like Airbnb and um, some of the companies, they're all. You know, designers who are who are founding them are on the founding teams, and you know, designers actually. I feel like right now, like they have that they've been wanting like a seat at the table, for, like lack of a better phrase, like for a long time, and like now they have it. Um, especially like in a lot of bigger companies, maybe there's some holdouts, but those are going to be quickly changing too. I think um, that's kind of the trend that you've seen, and I don't think that's that trend is um, going away anytime soon. Um, in terms of like visual design, or I think it's kind of depends on like the company's needs too. But I like what I see is you kind of have to be like comfortable in every role. Like 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 what Melissa said, the term full stack designer is kind of uh, important these days. I guess um, as long as as long as you can do that, I think those your those skills will always be in need. I also say one thing, and I always think that's experience design. That's a product of interaction, and you're building something so someone can connect with your vision, whether it's brand or product. So, you know, I think it has to be about the form. It's more of the emotional connection that you're trying to have. I would say it's part problem solving and part aesthetic. That is what design is applied problem solving with aesthetics. To me, today, product design is there's something around, like, we're looking mainly on the web. And apps, and you know, phones, and tablets, whatever we have. There's some sort of lack of inspiration. What's like what we have today? Like everything looks the same, and we have the same tools, and that's why we think product design is going away because I don't know. We everything is being automated, and we have all these great apps like principles that we don't need to think anymore because hey, this is how you do it, um, and also how sketches build and how to, like, like think about the whole evolution of how visual design and interaction design uh, looks and works today because of Google's material design. It's like an outcome of, of technology, right? Like they wanted to make things smoother and faster and that's how that's how we all yeah, that, that's, that's how we all uh, design today. And it's kind of crappy. Uh, anyway, like I miss the days of flash when you know we did whatever we wanted to do. So I don't think I think said <laughs> well, I did. I did. Like when, when the time of uh, technology, like Flash, maybe it's a shitty technology and it's not fast and it's 
a lot of a lot of things, but you gave designers some sort of freedom that we don't have today because we have to be efficient, we have to work in a very tight timeline, and we have to answer a lot of I don't know a lot of people now, and we have users that are already used to work in a certain way. They need, they're used to work with specific tools, but, and I don't want to you know be the one that will change their uh, behaviors. Uh, that's something you ask. Right? I have I have a uh, Old colleague of me, colleague that worked with me, constantly asked me to make this the, the thing that we were building to work like PowerPoint because our uh, target audience knows PowerPoint. So that's like a constant thing that uh, evolves. Technology always changes, and we design according to new technologies. I think our and that's where I think like the real designer should shine. It doesn't have to be a product designer or an interaction designer or a visual designer. As a designer, you have to be extremely creative to find ways to find these <coughs> moments where you're really giving a different experience, where you're really being human-centered. And that's not that's not something that's going to go away. You know, like so, virtual reality is coming now really strongly from all these different major companies and tons of solutions that we'll need to answer to cars that are coming, like all these new different wearables, it's always evolving. There's not going to be like a bank of WordPress templates for everything all the time. Uh, okay, thank you very much for answering. Uh, I thought it was like very interesting to me. Um, guys, it's time for Q&A. Go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, so my question is around scaling um, design teams and the idea of a design system. Um, so once you get to a certain number of designers and they start spinning off into individual teams, you have talked about of like few developers, PM, researcher, designer, and you really start to spread out, how do you communicate to all those designers and even the teams the core design language and aesthetic and component library? Talk about scale, Carl. Sorry. Um, so I think this depends on, honestly, the scale of your organization. So at Facebook, we actually have a team that works on this thing called FIG, Facebook Interface Guidelines, kind of like the Apple FIG, where they develop a lot of the standardized components and disseminate them to the rest of the teams. Often, we need to modify those to our own purposes, so we try to get buy-in from the FIG team, and that happens. But we are large enough that we have the luxury of having a team to do that. Chances are, if you are actively scaling your team to something that's more moderately sized, you don't have the luxury of doing that. So I highly recommend a couple of things. One, you need some kind of forum where your designers talk to each other, even if they are individually embedded in product teams. And by the way, personally, I don't think that single designers embedded in product teams are very successful. It's hard to be the only person in your perspective. So if you don't have a place, a safe space, <laughs> where you can talk to other designers and vet your designs, it's really hard to function. So start by getting that overarching design team, even if you're meeting once a week for critique. And then from there, you can start building things. So maybe you go for a day-long offsite to identify the parts that you need to build. And then you distribute those parts, like, so if you're going to work on pull-up things, you're going to work on the date picker, you're going to work on the story, the story card, you're going to work on headers and footers, you're going to work on color palette, go off for a day or two and build that and get a kernel of things that you can then build together over time. And acknowledge the fact that if you are on a team that is scaling, 
your design language is also going to need to scale and change and flex. So nothing can be set in stone. Everything must be used with good judgment and adjustment when it's out of date. The thing that I've tried on the latest one is how to integrate deeply with engineering. Um, one thing that I found is that if designers play here, engineers play here, uh, things get out of sync quickly. Like if there's no, like you need maybe a police person that just tries to go back and forth, or there has to be like a really strong integrity between engineering design to keep that thing updated. So the latest, latest approach is to have like everyone contribute in the same place, uh, which requires designers to be more engineering centric and engineers to understand how do we think in like like colors or styles and. The cool thing is that red lines are gone, which is fantastic. No more red lines are there. But it's maybe more appropriate for the kind of project that's, that's more, like as I was commenting before, more algorithm-based, um, not that like, one product you guys are having like very specific product apps. Um, so again, as before, what is the most appropriate um, methodology for the kind of team and writing here. But I'd love to talk to you later. Uh, uh, so, very important. Yeah, quick. Uh, so, we have two product, uh, two designers on every team, uh, but then we also all round up uh, both weekly in the meeting, but then also indirectly getting feedback all the time on what we're working on. We're all working on shared drives. Anybody can jump into anybody else's stuff while it's going on. If you walk by their screen, ask them how it's going, and just keeping that communication open. There's lots of really good books about like, how to communicate with your client really well, and there's not a whole lot of good books about how to com communicate with other designers really well. Uh, the more you, if you're talking about like 10, 20 people, you're at a point where you don't necessarily need that organization. Everybody is talking and communicating with each other. Uh, yeah, so I had a, a chief, I had a question that's in response to one of the earlier questions that I asked about um, what, a, what a product designer is and how you might have roles that are user experience designers and, and interaction designers. Uh, I work in a, in a large engineering driven organization. They make lots of products, they are very engineering driven. What uh, uh, is the process that I've heard that I would like to try more in our organization is to make Product design, well, take make the product manager to hire designers as product manager, essentially. To say, well, sure, but then like let them be the ones who are in control of the product management experience instead of and, and then work with the UX designers and the UI designers to make it happen. And I'd like to have your thoughts on that. Not happening now. <laughs> So um, I'm going to embarrass someone here, my wife over there, um, product, product manager. And I think we have this discussion a lot, like, can a designer be a product manager? Um, that was your question. Yeah. So um, I think it really depends on the product. So and the designer. <laughs> so we, we come from different perspectives of what the role is. So if I'm coming from the more design world, uh, this specifically is, is originally a software engineer and did business. So it really depends what your product requires. If it needs more engineering, more understanding of business, of like understanding the market, 
then the typical designer won't necessarily be able to answer the needs of this product. Uh, but if this is a very design-focused company, where UX or, or visuals are a major part of the focus of the company and of the product, I think that a good designer, a designer with the abilities of being also uh, a PM, uh, can definitely answer a lot of your um, I think it depends a lot also on the complexity of the product that you're working on. Um, so at Facebook, we have a lot of cross-functional communication, collaboration, etc. And the product manager is also responsible for scheduling and managing the work of the engineering team. Uh, and personally, as a designer, if I were interfacing with the business people, managing the conversations with the privacy and legal team, and trying to keep all the engineers on task, I don't think I would be get my design job done. Um, I think there's also another theory of checks and balances within the organization. Yeah, you're shifting, right? You're moving from being a designer to being a PM full-time. That's like, you can be a PM part-time and be a designer and be a developer. You, you, you're a PM, then you're a PM. That's what you're doing now. And, and we actually, there's a one great designer at Facebook who actually just converted over to being a PM because that was where his interests and his talents really uh, lay in driving that type of change. So if that's your jam, you should do it. Um, but if you try to ask somebody to wear too many hats in a, um, in a larger organization, I think it's not, it, it's going to be a really tough row. So we're talking about, you know, all these positions and I'm sure everyone here has had many roles and everything, but how can we start telling people to be more storytellers rather than you know, you're this part of the pie, and you're this part of the pie, and you're this part of the pie. Right? So, um, you know, working with people from uh, Adaptive Path that comes from IDEO and, you know, other, other companies, like, I've learned that it's more about the storytelling that implies tools, that implies skill, that implies all of this, you know, whatever it is. Like, how can we train others and ourselves to be more uh, storytellers rather than the piece of the pie? Else want to take this one? Very, very quick. The first thing that comes to mind is that, like, I would say, just to use your your way to speak, we are all telling a story, and I think at least at Yahoo historically there hasn't been like a strong relationship between all the parts of the pie, and I think if we can mix that pie, maybe it's going to be more delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <clears throat> um, in my experience with that, um, you have to actually, if you're in, I don't know how to become necessarily a storyteller, um, but the thing, in my experience, you have to kind of fight to become, or you have to fight if you want to tell that story. Um, so like a lot of the things I, I work on right now are like maybe small changes to existing pages or screens. Um, and that's not really thinking holistically. You're thinking of just improving like a stat just so you can improve conversion. Um, um, but then, but you have to like kind of take a step back. As you take a step back, you, you think like holistically about like the whole experience, the whole entire flow. And um, when you do that, um, when, you, when you do that, you kind of have a, a better picture of like what the story is. Um, then. From there, I'm, I mean, I'm still working this out myself, but you kind of have to communicate to that to your team about why this is why this is good. You have to say, uh, you know, telling this story is best because you know A, B, and C, and lay out your goals. 
Um, you kind of have to frame it like that, um, I feel. And I've had, you know, again, this is just like from my personal experience in at Uber, um, and also like in my past company, Lumosity. They also kind of, at Lumosity, we also emphasize like the holistic approach to things. Um, so we had a really strong design culture around that, and we had a really um, uh, kind of like a lot of buy-in from like a lot of stakeholders. So instead of just changing like one component and like measuring conversion on that, it's like, oh, that was our initial idea. And then we always zoomed out and like, how does that fit into the overall story that we're trying to tell with this? Um, so I don't have any specific answer. I just, I'm just kind of saying you need to like fight for it and you need to you know, kind of explain yourself and why that is beneficial. Um, I have a question You were talking about um, conducting research, like use of research internationally and how important to have a representative example. So, how do you go about determining which demographics and deep dive are going to go to Geneva, for example? And also, maybe do you have an interesting example of when one demographic views the product in a completely different way than another demographic? And so, they justify this kind of level of research. Um, so, in terms of trying to find the right demographic, um, that goes back to data. <laughs> Um, and I think it's because as Facebook, we're dealing with a large population and we log a lot of data into our record. So we're always looking at uh, comparatively um, the user types, even besides you know, like which country they come from, but there's more deeper ways you can slice the data. Um, so it's all about working with data scientists and find what actually is the right question to ask from the data. Um, so, for example, I think um, I'm working on ads. So, one of the ads we have is an ads manager uh, app. And what we found is people um, in East Asia um, use the ad very differently compared to um, other countries. Just because we saw the trend um, in the data is very different. So, right now we're trying to plan a trip to, to figure out what exactly um, caused the difference. So that's a, a combination of you know looking at data and uh, find a way to dive deeper um, between quant and qualitative research really um, helps with that. Um, so I think Juan gave a very good explanation of how we identify demographics, so I don't think I need to add to that. But I can give you an example of how people in different places use the app very differently. Um, so here in the US, um, my father, who is almost 80, um, and is not on Facebook because he claims that old dogs can't learn new tricks. I don't believe him, but that's another story. Um, if I twisted his arm and made him sign up for Facebook today, I think he would probably know that when it gets to the part of adding friends, that he should probably only add people that he knows in real life. Right? And why does he know that? He knows that because, um, number one, he's surrounded by people who use Facebook in a very particular way. Number two, he is surrounded by media coverage of how Facebook can be kind of nefarious or lead to bad experiences when you friend other people. Um, so he has this already, this, this prefixed idea of what Facebook is that's because of the saturation in the people around him. But when we go to emerging markets where new people are coming onto the internet, 
they know that Facebook exists, they know the icon, they know the brand, and they know that it's something that they want to get in on, but when they actually get in the door, their ideas of what the app is for change. They're not the same as people like my dad who are just surrounded by these ideas. So we'll, when we go to places like Ghana, for example, we find that people collect friends who live outside the country because it's a status thing. Look at how many people I know and I'm friends with in different countries. Also, it's a substitute for travel. If you don't have the money to travel, if you make friends that are outside of your country, you suddenly get to see how the rest of the world is in a way that is incredibly personal. Um, so there are usage patterns that are very different uh, around the world because the product, I mean, we kind of think it's Facebook a little, has like a little bit of a Swiss Army knife of a product because if you go there to connect with people who are really interested in your favorite cricket team, you can find that. If you go there connect, to connect with the people from high school that you just want to stalk because maybe you want to know that they get a bat, um, you can totally do that. Um, if you want to see baby pictures of all of your cousin's babies, that's there for you. And if you want to use it as a substitute for travel, it's there. And it's fascinating. I mean, one of the, one of the reasons why I took this job on Facebook is because I was really tired of designing for assholes like myself. Um, we are trying to optimize the least little piece of our life. Um, like, okay, so we're going to build an app that's going to allow you to manage your and your Everlane, and also your Washio. It's going to be kind of like a concierge service that manages your digital life. Does that sound cool? Um, I mean, it is kind of cool, but it's really demanding when you're trying to design for someone who has really high expectations of a product, and it's also like trying to squeak that last little bit out of the demographic. But when you design for people around the world, you're actually making a major difference in people's lives because they have connectivity suddenly that they didn't have before, and things like virtual travel are possible. Um, and we learn that by talking to real people. We don't learn that from the numbers. One last question. Um, I have sort of a big question. Um, so when you hire, when you want to hire designers, what are the important characteristics you want to see on them? Should I just keep going? <laughs> <laughs> Do somebody else want to chime in on this one? Okay, I'm going to rattle off the list to you. You ready? Product strategy, interaction design, visual design, uh, self-awareness, intentionality. So let's talk about those last two because I think a lot of those, a lot of people don't think about what those mean. Um, so intentionality. When you make a decision, you have a reason for it. Sounds pretty stupid, right? But um, Sometimes that reason is, well, I didn't have another, like I didn't have an idea, so I just made it blue. Um, but if you are intentional in your choices and then you get new data, you get new information about people, how people are actually using your product, you can make a better choice. If you are arbitrary in your choices and you're not thinking about how those choices are arbitrary, then you as a designer, when you get um, information about how your product is working or not working, then you're not going to be able to change it to be better. Um, Self-awareness. What are you good at? How many of you here? How many of you here can think about what you're good at right off the top of your head? Yeah. Dancing. Dancing? Yes. Awesome. Maybe you're in the wrong profession. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you're in the right profession. Um, so, uh, someone who is aware 
Someone who is self-aware of what they are strong at and what they are not strong at. Um, when they are doing well versus when they are not doing well is going to be an asset to your organization because number one, if they know when they're not doing well, they are going to seek out help. Sometimes I don't see, I don't see everything that goes on with all the designers that work for me, much to my own dismay. So either you come to me for help or I have to notice that there's a problem. And sometimes when I notice that there's a problem, it's already too late. Um, so self-awareness goes a long way. And also, I've also noticed that people who are strongly self-aware grow faster and achieve more. Um, so those are two properties that most people don't think about when they're hiring, but I find them absolutely critical. Um, I have one thing to add, like basically I have two things. Uh, so one is side projects. Like when I see someone is doing any side projects, I know that they're a tour. I think I respect tours. Like people do stuff. Um, and people who want to launch and have the hunger for launching something and getting like, you know, traffic inside. So, and, and basically making a difference. So I think like that's one side project. And two, basically something that I learned in the, in the convention, like there was a convention in Israel about design leadership. Melissa attended and gave a great talk. Um, so one thing I learned in that convention is a sense of humor. Uh, it's something new that I added as a benefit when I interviewed. I think that uh, when someone has a sense of humor, I, it's just like it makes the whole like team just all of a sudden like more optimistic and, and better, and, and it's it's more fun to come to work every day. Um, and I have actually a great a, a great designer on my team, like super funny, and it makes the whole like experience of coming to work different. So a sense of humor is something I've got on the well. But again, not everyone has it, but yeah. So I think, again, this question is so um, specific according to why are you trying to get hired to and, and what exactly, like which position, more visual, more UX. So all of these are uh, things that I think are different from each company. And I can just say around IDEO and maybe companies that are similar and very and focusing a lot around team building and storytelling and uh, human-centered design. There's something that is uh, a lot about your story, like what who you really are, and can you tell that story in an um, uh, like an appealing way? Um, and there's something around a lot of honesty, authenticity. Um, that I know that I can talk only for audio, but it's a major, major thing. Like be a real person, add something to the table. Is someone that people will want to go on a week uh, research with you outside of the country and be with you in hotels and, and like weird places and um, add something to the table. That's pretty much it. So just show that you're a unique person um, and not just another like yeah I can move my pixels. <laughs> You guys were amazing. And uh, one last, uh, two last thank you. One for Paige. She was my, uh, she, she, she was like really helping me organize everything here when I was like so far away.
Thank you very much. And uh, a big shout out to Gallup and I for sponsoring this and for Envision uh, and similar web for getting you all the drinks and pizza to make sure this is happening. Uh, they are amazing. They are just like, are you doing a panel about what? Okay, great. Now we're in. And like, really, it's like really, really fun to have that support. So thank you very much to them. And uh, that's it. I hope you guys like uh, enjoyed. You're welcome to uh, to follow um, the Science Club Startups uh, in Meetup.com, um, right? To get updates um, and HackingUI.com. We got a great newsletter coming to you every week. So you're welcome to come HackingUI.com and, and sign up and enjoy the content. Um, and there are all that like it's. It's pretty like uh, it's kind of a bad contrast on this specific screen, but the hashtags of uh, not the hashtags, the handles of uh, all of our uh, panelists are here, so you can follow them on Twitter. And uh, we would all be glad to have 40 followers. <laughs> <laughs>